This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're now full steam ahead into 2014. Over 2 million people have signed up for insurance coverage through the insurance exchanges. And while there are a few glitches that still need to be resolved, the sky hasn't fallen. And in fact, it looks a little uh, like the sun's coming through. One glitch that has gained significant attention in recent weeks, though, has been a discovery there was no provision to add newborns to the existing family plans purchased through the exchange. One of those very specific glitches, been identified, will be worked out, but we can imagine that we'll see more of these as time goes on. But it does seem the biggest issue affecting healthcare.gov has been worked out, and that's just being able to access and navigate the site successfully and enroll. It's the law of the land, Margaret, and it will continue to create some ripple effects in 2005. 14. Analysts predict we will continue to see expansion this year of provisions that will make the healthcare landscape more fertile for coordinated care delivery. Well, for sure, we think that we'll see continued growth in the development of more partnerships, uh, more creation of accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes, where care that is consolidated and coordinated is the norm and not the exception. And we hope we'll see some improvement in outcomes and perhaps some uh, shared savings in the situation. Mm-hmm. I think it's wise to temper that expectation with some degree of caution. There are still uncertainty as how much we'll see in cost savings initially. Uh, I think the industry analysts are expecting to see some mixed results uh, with ACOs initially, but the trend is going to continue towards more coordinated care, and that's a good thing for improved patient-centered care. Well, that's something that our guest today knows quite a bit about, Mark. Dr. Robert Pearl is the president and CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the largest physician-led system in the country, serving more than 4 million patients. They've crafted a model of care that shares the risk and the responsibility among all the medical professionals and patients within their group to drive improvement in health outcomes. Very interesting model of how coordinated care adds so much value to the provider and the patient experience of receiving care or delivering care. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements about health policy spoken in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Robert Pearl in just a moment. But first, here's our producer. Marianne O'Hare with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Health spending continues its slowed pace of growth. Health spending numbers from 2012 were released last week and show historically low increases in medical prices and spending, about 3.7% increase in spending during that year, compared to more than 8% annual growth in the early 2000s. Analysts aren't pointing to one specific cause for the slowdown, not the Affordable Care Act, though its provisions are leading to more price transparency. Traditionally, health spending slows during a recession, and this time has been no different. But there's another factor at play here than in recessions past. There's a higher percentage of folks with high deductible insurance, meaning they pay more out of pocket for health care. Studies have shown definitively that these high deductible plans lead people to hold off on elective and sometimes even necessary care because of the cost. Also, Medicare spending is down largely because a number of blockbuster prescription drugs like Lipitor ran out of their exclusivity, meaning cheaper generic drugs became available to millions of consumers leading up to 2012. And one thing that's expected to grow in coming years due to the Affordable Care Act, 
hiring in the medical professions. Analysts predicting a spike in hiring across the spectrum. Healthcare providers are going to be hiring more nurse practitioners and physician assistants to meet the growing demands of millions of newly insured. And companies are now required to provide access to insurance. They'll be seeking human services employees who are expert in health benefits management. Some Texas health executives are up in arms over limits to the number of health insurance exchange navigators in that state. Legislation has been crafted that would exert greater demands on insurance exchange navigators. Critics say it's an overt, politically motivated attempt to hamper efforts by navigators trying to educate Texans about their options on the federal health exchange. They're appealing to Texas Insurance Commissioner for a revision of the rule, saying it hurts the poor, the uninsured, and those delivering the care. The numbers of football players from the NFL now suffering from Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Lou Gehrig's disease, dementia in their 40s and 50s cannot be refuted. An agreement is about to be approved that would absolve the NFL of legal liability but set up a fund for those former players to be compensated for taking years' worth of blows to the head while working the gridiron. The deal to pay millions of dollars per former NFL player in premature cognitive decline. It's an acknowledgment of the role concussions have played in the brain disorders of a fair number of former pro football players. And the letter of the week, speaking of cognitive decline, is the letter E, as in vitamin E. Studies show that a daily dose of vitamin E early in an Alzheimer's diagnosis proves prophylactic and protective in delaying worsening of symptoms, offering hope for delaying the need for full-time caregivers in the lives of those patients. The study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association showed those taking vitamin E doses delayed worsening of the illness for as much as six months to two years compared to those taking a placebo or those taking menentine, a drug for more advanced stage Alzheimer's. The study was conducted among a number of veterans, administrations, clinics. More study is needed. I'm Ariane O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Robert Pearl, Executive Director and CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the largest physician-led group in the nation serving over 4 million patients. He's also chairman of the Council of Accountable Physician Practices, which seeks to foster the development of the accountable care organizations to improve health care. A board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon, Dr. Pearl is also a clinical professor of plastic surgery and medical economics at Stanford University Schools of Medicine and Business. Dr. Pearl has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and is a regular health industry blogger at Forbes.com. He has been named by Modern Healthcare as one of the most powerful physician leaders in the country. Dr. Pearl, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Good afternoon. Since 1998, you've been at the helm of the nation's uh, largest physician-led healthcare organization at Kaiser Permanente, and your organization is uh, predicated on this principle that coordinated care is best way to optimize healthcare delivery. We sort of think of you all as an efficient effective and as an elegant healthcare organization. And uh, for those of our listeners who are not as well acquainted with your care delivery model, how, how does it differ from the typical primary care environment? I think there are four ways in which it's different. Uh, the first is integration. So we have multiple departments, as people would have in adult medicine or OBGYN or surgery or neurosurgery for that matter. And the people in that department work together as one, but it's also vertically integrated, which means that primary care relates to specialty care in a very 
uh, direct way, and it ties into the second part, which is the technology. They share the same technology. We have a fully electronic inpatient and outpatient record, so the information is available on every patient, wherever they may be, at any of our 20 different medical centers, as you say, taking care of 4 million people. A third part that's very different is that we're prepaid. Uh, it can be very difficult, but what it does is it aligns the interests of the doctors and the patients, because when you avoid a complication, you help the patient and then your organization becomes more successful. When you invest in prevention, you're able to accomplish the same. When you can offer technological alternatives to having to come into the doctor's office, all of those pieces now start to align. And the last part is that we have a defined leadership structure. So there's a very clear role that I play as the CEO, and again, that's very different than the typical uh, community around us. Well, Dr. Pearl, that patient electronic medical record that you talked about, certainly you were one of the earliest major groups to convert to electronic health records, uh, to have it accessible from anywhere, wherever the patient was within the system. I'm wondering what your thought is with a patient population of over 4 million. How have you used the electronic health records to improve health outcomes generally for patients, to make an impact on population health beyond uh, the care of each individual person with that incredible treasure trove of clinical data to look at? What kinds of initiatives have you undertaken to improve the population of your patients as a whole? I'd say there are three ways in which the electronic medical record is very powerful. And the first is simply having data on every single patient. But it means that the patient never has a problem with the doctor knowing what medications they're on or what diseases they have or what laboratory information has been available in the past or what studies are, are present for that person. The first thing is it gives us the opportunity to compare results across what we call medical centers. A medical center is, takes care of about a quarter of a million people. And so we can compare each of our medical centers against each other and what we find is that in any given area, some are better than others. And what we can then do is learn from those who are doing it the best. So a couple of examples. Uh, what we know, for instance, in hypertension is that some people can control it better than others. And across this nation, it's only controlled about 55% of the time. We're about close to 90%. And that happened by an iterative process of learning from each other the best ways to do that. And the consequence is about a 40% lower chance of a patient developing a stroke. Another way it's used is for broad research. So we're able to look at uh, outcomes utilizing the data that sits in the fully electronic medical record. And as an example of that, in sepsis, what we found is that we can find a day or two in advance that they actually had all the uh, prerequisites for ultimately developing a full-blown sepsis. And by obtaining the lactate levels and the other uh, laboratory results, we can start treatment earlier. And as a consequence, again, across the nation, the mortality is about 15 to 20%, and we're under 9%. So it's that use of that data to be able to look at large populations, large numbers of patients, and as a result of that, figure out something that works better than the more traditional ways. Well, that number is so uh, so impressive. Uh, you're both a professor at medicine at uh, Stanford University. You also teach medical economics in the School of Business, and sort of the transformation of healthcare systems really does come down to economics. So you talked about that in your four guiding principles and really sort of the 
issues around alignment with payers, providers, and patients. We had Dr. Patrick Soon Xiong was a guest on our show, and he, he noted that there was no ICD-9 code for being well. But you say there should be uh, incentives and rewards for fostering wellness in patient populations. So what's your vision for shifting the economic incentives in healthcare? Or do you even see within the prepaid model that you have, there's, there's also an incentive model as well? Well, there's always an incentive to get better at preventing disease. And physicians are trained to treat disease. And so shifting the mental mindset is essential. So how did the American healthcare system develop? And it developed in a very different world that uh, patients essentially were healthy. They got an acute illness, often let's say a pneumonia, and they had a very simple medication, an antibiotic, uh, or they had actually a heart attack and they were admitted to a hospital for observation. There was not a lot of things that were available to be offered to them. You can think about it very much as it being a 19th century cottage industry. It was fragmented. Each of the people providing the care, whether the doctors or the hospitals, were isolated. It was fee-for-service, which is uh, piecemeal. And obviously, the technology wasn't yet advanced. Now we're in a world of chronic disease, multiple chronic diseases. And so the question now becomes, how do you shift doctors' thinking around this? Mm -hmm. The first thing, as you mentioned, is prepayment. If you're prepaid to take care of a patient and you can avoid, whether it's a new problem, or whether it's a complication of a problem they have, then you're able to uh, be able to advantage both the patient and yourself. The other advantage that we have is our average patient stays with us for over 17 years. Mm -hmm. In the community, it's only about five years. So we want to invest in that prevention. And then finally, I think our organization attracts people who are mission-driven. When the um, typhoon hit in in the Philippines, We had over 300 people volunteer to go there to provide relief and send two teams. But I do believe it relates to why people choose health care in the first place. And I think mobilizing all of those different pieces, the prepayment, the ongoing relationship with prevention, and the mission-driven spirit can allow us to make that advances in preventive care. Well, Dr. Pearl, I'm going to link back to some of what you just said uh, in the context of where we are now in the country. You've uh, said yourself that this is a very critical pivot point in healthcare. So we have the Affordable Care Act coming and all the changes we're in. But if I may, let me pull up as an exemplar again this uh, issue of hypertension that you just talked about and the wonderful results that you're having controlling it. I'm betting your focus was well beyond just that which uh, physicians at Kaiser did, that there were other people on this team as you think about pharmacists or behavioralists or health coaches, dietitians or nurses. Maybe tell us a little bit about what is that team? You've learned so well how to treat the hypertension. What is potential with a Kaiser-like organization to prevent hypertension? Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, I think you're raising a very important part, which is that although I do often speak about physicians, uh, our results could not happen without the uh, remarkable nurses and pharmacists and other support people sitting in play. So we have literally hundreds of uh, nurses who are continually looking inside the medical record, finding people who are not fully controlled and reaching out to them, finding people who need additional management of their diabetes. Uh, We have staff people looking at areas such as the cancer preventive areas, the mammograms and the cervical cancer screening and the colon screening to see whether they've had it and be able to reach out to them. And again, this is where the alignment comes into play because when you have that focus on prevention, you make the kinds of investments that are necessary in order to uh, reach out to people proactively in advance. 
And so we could not get these kinds of results without that. But one of the things that's most interesting to me is every time a patient comes to our offices, we print out for them, it's available online, it's available on our prevention app, we print out for them all of the screening things they've not yet had. And the receptionist, the person who's greeting them, now looks at this. So if you think about the typical office in the community, what's the receptionist doing? Worrying about billing, worrying about coverage. What's the receptionist doing in Kaiser Permanente, they're looking to see, have you had your mammography? Have you had your colon cancer screening? Have you had your cervical cancer screening? And making sure you can get it done, hopefully that day, because you're already in the medical center. And every month we have a ceremony where we honor these people who have saved a life. Oh, that's so great. That is great transformation. Because they found someone who hadn't had the mammogram, went and had the mammogram, and there was the cancer. And you can imagine what that's like for someone who's a receptionist to actually have saved a life. So the whole process becomes very, very synergistic. We're speaking today with Dr. Robert Pearl, Executive Director and CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the largest physician-led group in the nation, with over 9,000 member physicians. He's also chairman of the Council of Accountable Physician Practices, which seeks to foster the development of the accountable care organizations to improve health care. Dr. Pearl was named by Modern Healthcare as one of the most influential physician CEOs in the country. So let's talk a little bit about the work that you're doing at the Council of Accountable Physician Practices. And it's a consortium of kindred spirits, uh, folks like Geisinger and Intermountain and others. Tell us about the mission of this organization and the kind of influence you hope to have on the larger medical community during this era of reform that we're in now in the United States. So the Council of Accountable Physician Practices was started several years ago, and it brought together uh, 31 different medical groups, uh, the largest and the leading groups across the United States. At that time, the idea of integrated group practices, ones that were technologically enabled, having tremendous value was not being seen by others. And that opportunity to come together to be able to tell that story of how much better the care can be for a patient when they're in an environment where everything is coordinated and collaborative and the data is always available. That started to be the process of identifying and demonstrating that. Now we're five, six, seven years later, and as you say, it's now become accepted across this country, ideas such as accountable care organizations, that the same kind of integration, meaningful use, the same use of the computers, all the processes that we started several years ago, or historically actually decades in the past, are now becoming commonly accepted. So there's a shift that's happening for the Council of, of, of Accountable Physician Practices. Now our focus is very much on helping others to understand how do you put together these integrated groups, helping each other to figure out how do we raise the quality and the service and make our care more efficient and effective for all of us. One of the most important things is being able to compare outcomes and results. And when you bring together groups like Geisinger, groups like Mayo, groups like Kaiser Permanente, Intermountain, Virginia Mason, you're now able to now compare what I like to think of as being the best of the best and figure out now how do you get even better. And that's an opportunity that we have. Uh, We'll be providing some case studies, developing them right now, where others can read them and start to understand how do you get a better result in hypertension or how do you get a better result in sepsis or how do you get a better result for a particular population. I think the nation is yearning to understand this idea of integrated care, particularly ones that provided it in a technologically enabled and prepaid way. And I think the Council of Accountable Physician Practices can do that. Well, I think you're exactly right. And uh, 
resonating through everything that you just said are two phrases for me. One is quality improvement, and the other is managing change, both of which are so essential. And, you know, in our organization, we are very keenly focused on this issue of quality improvement, the science of quality improvement, and how you use it to make things better. And we know firsthand uh, the challenges, and now we help other uh, health centers across the country to do this, of engaging frontline staff in quality improvement and then using uh, the tools that we borrowed from other industries like the car industry with you're looking at a huge national corporation with your health centers with 250,000 patients assigned to each. Maybe give us just a little bit of an insight. How does Kaiser and how do you take this issue of quality improvement and make it real as a living, breathing process every day as you work to make things better throughout your system? I start by saying you have to segment the different aspects of quality. And by that I mean some of them such as cancer prevention, either you've had it or you haven't had the recommended approach and find a system to reach out. And that requires a commitment at every point. Half of the patients in the, in the country in a typical year never see primary care. So if you're dependent upon primary care only, you're not going to get it done. So the specialist has to get, be involved. That requires the same data systems, the same focus, the same uh, leadership around that. Number two, you have diseases, and we talked about that earlier, like hypertension, where you want to do early intervention to avoid the late complications. So there, again, you want to have the systems that we talked about that, the nurses, the pharmacists, the, more, uh, the licensed, more skilled people now, starting to look at how can they help the physician work with the physician to make that happen. I think there's a third level of prevention, which is uh, what Zeke Emanuel talks about is tertiary prevention. People with heart failure who can be managed for a long time without having to be admitted to the hospital with all the secondary consequences of, uh, of the failure of their heart and medical problems that develop as a result. We can intervene more easily, and now you need even a more sophisticated set of systems. I think there's a fourth area that we often don't think about in terms of prevention, which is in the hospital. So the typical hospital in the United States has about 4% of its patients from pressure ulcers. That's preventable. So we've dropped that under 1%. So we work that provost and others have done on uh, central line infections, hospital-acquired pneumonia. The opportunity to make sure that when the patient's admitted with, a, with chest pain and a heart attack, you build into the electronic medical record each of the right steps to do, the six bundles of uh, cardiovascular care which even though we were doing very well a few years ago at 92%, we're now at 99.9, using the technology and the focus. And then finally, I would say the opportunity of the future, which is to use particularly mobile technology to reach out to the patient. I think we're moving in a world away from the sole accountability for health care, for prevention, for outcomes, being at the medical system and increasingly making it at the patient level and engage them in managing it. So it's at every point in the process. Everyone's got to be involved. No matter how well you do, you can always do better. And an organization that wants to continually learn, learn from the successes, learn from the comparisons, and learn from the problems, is one that's going to be at the forefront of uh, quality leadership. Dr. Pearl, you're a physician, but as a CEO, you're quite likely a pragmatist. In the 21st century, pragmatists rely on technology that serves them. In a recent blog you wrote for Forbes.com that you address the ongoing battle between the traditionalist and the medical profession, those sort of advocating the human touch uh, aspects of medical practice – 
and the technologists who are incorporating technological advances to improve care. And there's this friction that goes on. You've written about it uh, in, in your blog. You've called it the medical prize fight. So how can we bring the best of both of these perspectives, big data and big wisdom, if you will, uh, to achieve these workable synthesis to, to complete these ideas? Yeah, that was a fun blog. It was actually a debate that I had between Abraham Verghese, the author of uh, Cutting for Stone, and Vinod Kosla, the uh, entrepreneurial venture capitalist of Silicon Valley. We have to separate healthcare into segments, and we don't do a very good job. This is what the business school does, segmenting a particular problem, recognizing that one solution never holds across everything. So there's some areas that we know what to do. I just mentioned it before. You come in with chest pain, we know exactly what to do. By that, I don't mean Kaiser Permanente, I mean the nation. And building that into an electronic medical record and getting everyone to do the right thing has been demonstrated time and time again to provide better outcomes. We know how to make sure that we put a central line in place and we don't create an infection. We just have to do it every single time. So this, the technology needs to drive the process when we're certain what's going to happen. Then there are some patients for whom they have a very complex, they have five different problems. There is no easy way, mm -hmm. at least today, to be able to use technology to figure out what they need. And that's where the human touch and the human brain become so essential. Although even there, we're trying to use our technology to inform our physicians based on 14 million medical records. Mm -hmm. that says this patient has an 82% or 56% of a particular problem to assist that, but it's still probabilistic and requires people to do it. And then the third area, and I think we've not done a very good job of this as a country, is the end-of-the-life type care. Mm -hmm. I was talking to someone uh, two days ago who was saying that their mother was 87 years old. All she really wants is the doctor to listen to her. She mm -hmm. can't find a doctor who's going to take the time to listen to her. And that's what I think we need to understand. At that moment, it doesn't require technology. It doesn't require sophisticated care. It does require the human touch, particularly the human ear. We've been speaking today with Dr. Robert Pearl, Executive Director and CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. You can follow Dr. Pearl on Twitter by going to at RobertPearlMD or follow his Forbes blog by going to Forbes.com slash sites slash Robert Pearl. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Mark and Margaret, thank you so much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Democrats are exaggerating the impact of the Affordable Care Act on children in Pennsylvania, claiming that repealing the act would take away health care from 657,000 children in the state with pre-existing conditions. No, it wouldn't. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has sent email blasts making this claim, targeting Representative Mike Fitzpatrick, who favors repeal. But that 657,000 number comes from an Obama administration estimate for all children living in Pennsylvania under age 18 with some kind of pre-existing condition. It's not an estimate of how many had gained coverage because of the law's protections or an estimate of how many would lose coverage if the health care law were repealed. It's true that the health care law requires insurance companies to cover all children under age 19 with no pre-existing condition denials or exclusions. The same protection also stands for adults. 
but repealing the law wouldn't take health care away from 657,000 children, as the DCCC claimed. The figure is a high-end administration estimate for all kids in Pennsylvania with pre-existing conditions, whether they were covered already with private or government insurance or uninsured. If all of those kids were put in the individual market for some reason, they could potentially be at risk of being denied coverage or charged more without the Affordable Care Act's protections. But all those kids weren't getting insurance on the individual market before the law, and they wouldn't all be seeking such coverage if the law were repealed. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The flu doesn't just exact a toll on public health. It packs a meaningful punch on the economy every year as well. Comprehensive vaccination programs have had an impact on curtailing flu outbreaks, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. In 2011, an estimated 100 million workdays and close to $7 billion in lost wages were attributed to the flu largely because many employees without paid sick leave are more inclined to work while sick. An estimated 80% of those who come down with flu-like symptoms ignore doctor's orders and go to work, leading to more widespread co-infections. In a first-of-its-kind study, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health decided to analyze the impact on flu outbreaks in the workplace and to ask what would the difference be if there were universal access to paid sick leave. Lead researcher Dr. Supriya Kumar says their study showed a pretty dramatic link between access to paid sick leave and a reduction in flu outbreak in the workplace. They also created another option. What if there were a new sick leave category focusing just on flu days? Their model showed that if those workers specifically diagnosed with flu were guaranteed just one paid day off to recuperate, there'd be a 25% reduction in the spread of flu. And when workers were guaranteed two paid days off, the numbers went up to a 40% reduction in co-infection. A universal paid leave program for all workers that has the potential to greatly reduce flu co-infection in the workplace, positively impacting both public health while saving billions of dollars in the overall economy? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.